Entering the Freedom Hut. The showdown between Trump and the Democrats at the border continues to heat up. There's now a supplemental funding bill that's supposed to help the crisis. Democrats seem to be balking at it. What's this all about? Plus, will Trump strike Iran? Does he have the right as commander-in-chief to strike Iran without congressional approval? Jesse Smollett video is out showing a noose still around his neck when cops show up. And, oh, that's right, the latest Trump accuser seems like she is not of sound mind. That and more coming up. This This is the Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small step. Make Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. The Democrats don't want to sign anything, and now I think they're going to probably sign this, from what I understand. It's, I call it humanitarian aid. This isn't even about border. At the same time, you see the numbers are way, way down. Mexico has been really helping us a lot. They have very strong immigration laws. Uh, they are moving 15,000 people or 16,000 people to our southern border, and they move 16,000 troops to their southern border, which is pretty incredible. And a lot of signs are coming out where the cartels and all of the bad folks, the coyotes, as they call them, and all of the bad people that are bringing young children and taking advantage horribly. It's a form of slavery. It's horrible what they're doing to young children. A lot of that is stopping now because of what we're doing and because of what's happening on the border. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. The border is at the center of the national conscious uh, right now. Uh, we, we are focusing in on this thing, conscience and consciousness, actually. Those would both work. Uh, we're focusing in on this because the photos are coming out from journalists who are visiting the different detention facilities where there are children being held. The Democrats are demagoguing this issue as hard as they possibly can. You have, for example, uh Representative Jeffries claiming that this is a Trump manufactured crisis. Oh, that's right. Trump is the reason that all of these people from Central America are showing up at our southern border to game the system, lie and get into the country and then evade immigration enforcement once they're here. Play clip 20. This is a crisis that was manufactured by Donald Trump to feed the xenophobic beast that he has unleashed on the American people, and we need to end it. Because there is no decency as a nation to have these children being subjected to these horrific conditions. Does he really think that, that Trump is the reason for this? It started before Trump was even president. They first surge of unaccompanied minors happened during the Obama years. In fact, the first cages, as they call them, for children were built back under the Obama years. Uh, some of these facilities, when, and some of the photos that have been circulating on social media, they say, oh, look how terrible it is under Trump. Well, it turns out that some of those photos were from the Obama era. And you would think that that would maybe change the narrative that they put forward a little bit. But no, this is all about finding a moral high ground from which they can spit down on the Trump administration 
and harangue and harass and browbeat any independent voters into thinking that voting for Trump is a horrible thing to do. Uh, oh, by the way, Trump reminded everyone that it was, in fact, Obama that started this or where this whole thing started with the family separation, the border and, and children showing up and unaccompanied minors. Play clip three. And Do it's been something. that way for a long time. Do something. And President Obama built the cages. Remember when they said that I built them and then it was 1914. Do two wrongs make a right? It was 2014. Chuck, just listen for okay. one second. Separation. President Obama, I took over separation. I'm the one that put it together. What's happened, though, are the cartels and all of these bad people, they're using the kids. I inherited separation from President Obama. President Obama built, they call them jail cells. They were built Let's talk about what's happening Obama. now. Your administration, you're not doing you. the recreation, you're not even schooling these kids anymore. You've gotten rid of all we're that stuff. We're doing a fantastic job under the circumstances. The Democrats aren't even approving giving us money. Where is the money? You know what? The Democrats are holding up the humanitarian aid. Democrats don't want this problem to go away. That is obvious. Anyone can see that. They don't view the end result of it, illegal immigrants being released into the country, never to be seen again, most likely. They don't view that as a problem, and they think that what's happening right now at the border allows them to drown out and shout down anyone who points out that the Democratic Party is now an open borders party. That's where we are now. You want to talk about sanctuary city policy? Oh, look what Trump did at the border. He's running concentration camps, they say. You want to talk about a million illegals filtering into the country, lying, breaking the law in one year? Oh, how terrible. Look what's going on with family separation at the border. You want to talk about the resources that are being expended in order to try and process this massive surge and what this means for the rule of law, what this means for our legal immigration system, for people who are, wait, oh, how dare you? What about all the children being separated at the border? This is what it turns into. This is now the favorite talking point. This is the issue that the left cares about at the expense of all other immigration-related issues. And let's not forget that this is all the doing of people who are showing up knowing what's going on. You know, they have this this uh, sense in the media that all oh, these people, they're they're just they're fleeing this violence in Honduras. This is a lie. They're not fleeing violence in Honduras. They're not fleeing violence in El Salvador. They're fleeing poor countries with crappy economies that they don't want to be in anymore. And they want to be in America. And they want to get access. And this is, oh, you know, you have to keep pushing libs on this stuff because a lie. They'll say illegal immigrants don't get welfare benefits. Well, that's not true. If there's one. U.S. citizen, i.e. an anchor baby or another U.S. citizen who's in a household and there is an illegal living there, guess what? They benefit from the welfare that that one person is getting. And then there was an effort recently to try to change the formula of how much they would get so they wouldn't get benefits anymore. And the, and the libs freaked out about it because they know that they're getting And that's just the legal method of getting benefits if you're, if you're an illegal immigrant. At every turn here, they say things. The left is full of lies on immigration. The caravan won't make it to the border. The caravans will stop soon. The, the caravans are full of people that are, that are claiming asylum who aren't breaking the law when they come into the country. The car, you know, they, this lie after, there's no crisis at the border. They just, at every turn, what they say is false.
They'll show up for their court hearings. No, they won't. We'll deport them when they don't show up for their court hearings. No, we won't. How can you have a discussion with a political party that has shown itself to be so cynical and so dishonest on this major issue? I I don't know. I don't know how we can reach across and work with them on this. We have no common ground. We are now at a place where the question you must ask any Democrat is, what is the downside? Don't tell me that illegal is illegal and I'll and they'll act like illegal means it's bad because they don't care. What is the downside of illegal immigration? Ask them to explain that to you. Drain on resources in schools or hospitals? No, they don't agree with that. Uh, violating our sovereignty and overwhelming our ability to, in certain communities, assimilate newcomers? No, they don't agree with that. Adding to crime, even if it's only a small percentage of the overall population? No, they don't agree with that. Taking jobs from people that are in this country? No, they don't agree with that. Adding to the welfare rolls and, and burdening the American taxpayer? No, no, no. You know, just go no. They don't agree with any of that. They will, the Democrats will not accept that there is any downside of legal immigration. So then why not have the courage of their convictions come forward and just say, we do not believe that anybody should be excluded anymore. Unless they're like a, a doctor from a country that, you know, has a pretty high GDP and really widespread electricity and indoor plumbing. Like, we don't want that. We, we, we want people that are coming here who are impoverished, don't speak English, no connection to American culture, and just they're just going to show up. Essentially, Democrats have a preference for the third world over a merit-based immigration system. Okay, well, where does that lead us? And why is that a good? How about this? Why is that a good idea? In in what way does that benefit the people already here of all races and all backgrounds? America is a very diverse place. We take in a million legal immigrants a year. We are far and away the champion of the world when it comes to legal immigrants living in our country. Nobody else even comes close to us in terms of numbers, but it's never enough. You know, you say that, hey, a million illegal aliens coming to the country in this year, that feels like a bad idea. You're a bigot. You're a bad person. Okay, well, what about 10 million illegal immigrants? Where does it stop? Democrats have no answers. This is lawlessness. I mean, we've, finally, we've reached the end stage here of the Democratic Party and immigration where this is the last election where they will not be openly for open borders. What will happen if they get power in this next election is they will say, all right, now it's time for the amnesty. And once the amnesty is locked in, then they'll just say, all right, you know, everybody, everybody who wants to come from south of the border, show up. Just go for it. We'll, we'll find a place for you. You're the lifeblood of the American economy. In fact, you're you're better than Americans if you're not American. This is the this is the standard talking point. You do the jobs Americans won't do. You're more law abiding than Americans are. You uh, are necessary for you know, bringing up our demographic numbers, you know, without you, we're at negative, you know, population replacement. So, you know, the, the, the illegal aliens coming into the country are better than Americans. This has now become a Democrat Party talking point. And Democrats accept this because they have, you know, a lot of Democrats have all this white guilt and they've got all this virtue signaling they have to do. And they just sign on for this stuff. We're running out of room here to pretend that the Democrats are anything other than what I've just said. 
I don't know how much longer they're going to be able to hold out this sham that they really do want enforcement of the law. We'll be playing some some uh, sound bites for you of people like Nancy Pelosi just making it clear that they do not want the law to be enforced. And that's another place where you can just, you can, as sure as, you know, day follows night, or is it night follows day, uh, at any stage of the enforcement process, Democrats will either openly oppose it for illegal, for illegal immigration issues, they'll either openly oppose it or stonewall, foot drag, and make sure that nothing can be done. There is no third option. They are not in favor of this anymore. They, they went through, and you might say, well, Buck, hold on a second. During the Obama years, weren't they deporting, weren't they deporting a large number of people? There was a very clear plan that they were going forward with essentially what had been continuous policy, which they were deporting people coming to the country. But it was all so that Obama would be, would be criticized as the deporter-in-chief on the one hand, while on the other hand trying to push for a comprehensive quote, comprehensive immigration reform deal, which was just mass amnesty for 11 million, probably more like 15 or 20 million people. And that's that's ballgame. After that, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many people you think you're deporting or we're going to deport because you're going to stop deporting anybody. Then it's then it's done. Look at what happens in these cities. Look at how the political characters changed of San Francisco and Los Angeles and Chicago and New York. They are openly defying federal law enforcement requests for assistance, for information. They are obstructing federal law. And anybody who didn't do that in any of those cities who's an elected official would lose their job, no question. And they know that. It's a big problem. Look, immigration, Trump beat the Republican field in large part because of his stance at immigration. This is the biggest fight he's got on his hands right now. And we're not winning this one yet. Not even close. And he's definitely going to need four more years to follow through on on many of the major promises he made on immigration. But the Democrats, they're just so dishonest on this. I, I get exasperated with all their lies, with Pelosi and Smarmy Schumer and this whole crew and, and uh, CNN and MSNBC and all these pundits and all these people that just... They either don't know what they're talking about or they know what they're saying is bullcrap and they don't care because it serves the agenda. The agenda is open borders. The agenda is open borders. We'll be right back. The the truth is they don't want to get anything done. The Democrats use, they race bait. So they are only using this for identity politics. So they're going to people of Hispanic descent, and then they're saying, all of you guys, we're, we're helping all of you. Uh, the Republicans are bad. Trump is bad. They're, they're trying to demonize Trump. If, if you watch the language and the rhetoric that comes from the left, uh, it's scary, really. And you know, hopefully over time, uh, people of Hispanic descent will, will understand that the Democrats are only using them. Uh, they're not actually trying to help them. If they were trying to help them, they would have passed a bill already. Congressman Nunes gets it. He's correct. I mean, I was saying it's pretty obvious, isn't it? That this is all about identity politics. It's all about the Democrats keeping this issue as just a club with which they can shamelessly beat the Republicans who are, meanwhile, 
uh, trying to do what they can to stop this crisis from going right. But they, they don't you know, Democrats are standing aside crying about how the house is on fire. Republicans are saying, all right, let's let's send in the firefighters. Let's turn on the hoses. And Democrats are running over and, you know, cutting the hoses and kicking the firefighters. And then saying, why can't you deal with the crisis? Why can't you make this problem at the border go away? Well, it'd be a lot easier if we had some partners in this matter, wouldn't it? Now we've got the Democrats finally getting shamed into some kind of action on this. When do you ever find Democrats not wanting to spend $4.5 billion of taxpayer money? Other than the military, obviously. They don't want to, you know, that's where they draw the line. Additional funding for the military, Democrats get very worried about. But here we've got political reporting that Speaker Pelosi has an 11th hour deal in place with progressives in the Congress on an emergency border spending package. This just went up right before we came on air. Avoiding a an embarrassing intra-party split and ensuring the bill's passage. Top Democrats made several tweaks to the contentious $4.5 billion border funding bill just hours before it would be considered on the floor. All right, so this thing's probably going to get considered. It hasn't gone through yet, but it looks like they have $4.5 billion of emergency spun, uh, spending that will avert a funding lapse at the Federal Refugee Office. So it has to be reconciled, though, with the Senate's version before it can become law. All right, so there's something going on here, but this is only because everyone said, okay, Democrats, you complain about this all day, all the time. You act like this is the worst thing ever. Some of your members are calling them concentration camps. The Border Patrol is overwhelmed. This is not their job. They're not supposed to deal with this. You know, I'm sure a lot of you live in very spacious homes. If I sent a thousand refugees to your house, things would get pretty, pretty tough pretty quickly. Right. I mean, you just not enough floor space, not enough bathrooms, not enough food. Doesn't make you a bad person. You weren't expecting a thousand refugees. You got a house that you're living in. These Border Patrol stations are not meant for a mass migration of children. And that's what they're being put through. But it's all demagoguery, power politics, and lies from the Democrats. A little more on Pelosi's enforcement priorities. Then we'll talk about the Iran situation. Will Trump strike? Jussie Smollett is a complete moron. We've got things to discuss. Stay with me. He's holding the line. For America, Buck Sexton is back. When I saw that the president was going to have these ra- I mean, it was so appalling. It's outside the circle of civilized human behavior to just be kicking down doors, splitting up families, and the rest of that, in addition to the injustices that are happening at the border. We have legislation to go forward to address those needs. But in terms of interior enforcement, what is the per- you know? What, what's the point? You know, well, I won't even go into what the motivation might be for that. You just heard her say it, folks. I'm not making her say this. That's Nancy Pelosi. In terms of interior enforcement of our immigration laws, what's the point? Here you have the most powerful Democrat in the country, Number three in line for the presidency, the Speaker of the House of Representatives saying, why should we even enforce immigration laws at all? What's the point? Well, see, what I've been saying to you about the, 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 the single question that tells you everything you need to know, it's true. They don't think 
anything is wrong. They don't think there's anything bad about illegal immigration. They like illegal immigration. They've had a shift in their party entirely. They used to say, oh, it was a a problem to be managed, but they're kind of now they're just like, bring it on. The more illegals, the better. In terms of interior enforcement, what's the point? That is what Nancy Pelosi said. You heard her say it. I don't know, Nancy, because it's the law. Because if you don't enforce it, then nobody will obey it. Yeah. It's just it's just stunning. You know, in terms of laws against burglary, what's the point? They've already stolen the stuff. You're never going to get it back. Why should anybody get in trouble? What's the point? Oh, here's a better one. In terms of tax evasion, what's the point? I'm sorry, does anyone want to try to make the case that if you or I as individuals didn't pay our taxes, it affects anyone or anything in the United States? No, it doesn't. It's, I don't know. I mean, some of you might make a whole lot of money. I don't. But I'm telling you, it, it's not going to matter even if you're really rich. So then why enforce that law? Why break up families? When you send someone to prison for tax fraud, you break up a family. This is Nancy Pelosi. I mean, just speaking, this is what she really thinks. This is who she really is. And then on deportation, here's Nancy, play five. So, and, and that is really kind of what happened. He, he didn't say what he was going to do, but he, the president said, uh, oh, I'll let you know, I'll let you know. Went into, well, people broke the laws. It is a violation of status is not a reason for deportation. That's just not so. That is as wrong as wrong gets, Nancy Pelosi. If there is such a thing as wrong, what Nancy Pelosi just said there is wrong. If you are in the country illegally, you are subject to deportation, period. That is the law. That's just the way it is. This isn't, you know, hey, is the voting age 18? I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe. No, it is. It's 18. Right. You got to be 18 to vote. I know Democrats want to make it 12 so they can get you know toddlers to vote for them if they can. But it's 18. There's no wiggle room. There's no there are some things that just are. And to be in this country illegally is to be subject to deportation under law. A violation of status is not a reason for deportation. Wow. They're just saying it now. They're just telling you what they really think. Now it's all coming out. They're not trying to hide it the way they used to or to obfuscate or to, to play games. Now it's just, oh yeah, we don't want there to be any enforcement of these laws. And then on the border supplement bill that now Pelosi may have some agreement with the Looney Tunes progressives in her own party to get something through. Remember, this is Republicans. This is the Trump administration saying, hey, we got to get $4.5 billion down there because no one is disputing that these facilities are not meant for this and that they are overwhelmed. But there are only two options here. Uh, just release people, release children, just say, oh, just go, you know, have fun in America. Hopefully someone finds you. Or hold them until we know what's going on. And the first thing would just be open borders, right? That's what it's at least open borders for kids. And then, oh, just think about the stories if 
something bad happened to a child that hadn't been they hadn't vetted whether they're going to be released into a true family or you know it's just they're always going to they're going to trash border patrol they're going to trash immigration and customs enforcement they say abolish ice they're already saying this stuff but here's what pelosi says about the border supplement bill the emergency funding measure play 6 it's for the children the children the children it's about lifting them up in a way that takes them beyond what we do today. This is a very strong first step for us. A very strong first step for us, uh, for the children. It's very exciting. It's all about the kids, you see. Those of you who have been part of Team Buck for a long time know that what is one of my, what are my rules for politics always? When someone tells you they want to do something just for the children, be suspicious. Oh, it's just for the children. It might be. You should be suspicious. When a politician says it's for the benefit of the kids, ask questions. Trust me, Nancy Pelosi is not first and foremost concerned with what's happening to these children at the border. What she cares about is What does all this mean? How is this affecting public perception? And how will that affect the votes that will be cast in the next election? Because Pelosi wants to keep being speaker. That's that's the first thing. All the calculations stem from that. Everything else is noise. And then you just have Democrats who are crazy. Well, there are a lot of that. There's a lot of that going on. Governor Inslee, who is among the least notable and recognizable of a legion of Democrat candidates for the presidency at this point, or for the nomination, at least for the Democrat Party. Here's what he, you know, he had a, a novel way of, of maybe trying to, uh, to fix this. This is just, this is, this is, this is, I don't know how much more completely off the wall this is going to get, but this is getting close. That's right. The problem at our southern border, it's not that America is a rich country with a very, a very robust trillion-dollar welfare state. You know, that, that's not why people want to come here. It's not because we have a strong job market. No, no, it's climate change. E- everything. These, these people on the left can find a way to make anything about climate change. Everything is about climate change. They are just completely delusional about this. Play 19. Will well, you do that? Once you remove Donald Trump, what, there's, there will continue to be a, an issue on the southern border. What will you do about it? We will uh, follow the law, which is to allow people to have asylum requests. We will provide humane treatment for them and not separate children from their parents, which is both inhumane and, I believe, illegal. We will also, importantly, confront the causes of this immigration, one of which is we have climate refugees now because the climate crisis is making Central America uninhabitable for large parts of people. And Donald Trump keeps calling this a climate hoax. We have climate refugees, and we have to help give a chance for those people to stay in their ancestral homeland. How exactly do we have climate refugees? Does someone want to try to take a stab at this one? Climate refugees now. I thought it was their fleeing violence. Now, this is laughable until you realize where this could very quickly go. Oh, that's right. You know what comes next. Anyone, anywhere in the world, if they start, if the Democrats can latch onto this and get some get some momentum behind this, anyone, anywhere in the world, any third world 
you know, impoverished country with tremendous dysfunction and corruption, Central America, Southeast Asia, you know, you name it, Sub-Saharan Africa somewhere, whatever it is, anywhere in the world where there's tremendous dysfunction and poverty, you know what they'll be able to say? Oh, I'm going to claim asylum because I'm a climate refugee. Right now, maybe that wouldn't fly. Give it time. They will absolutely go for this. I, I, it, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If they think the world is ending because of climate change, it's our fault. What better way to get what they want to, to shine a light on climate change as this existential threat than to say that, oh, see, these people are fleeing their home, their, their native lands because of climate change. And they'll say this with a straight face. And you're supposed to look at them and not think that they have been smoking some really potent stuff. This is where we're heading. We're going to we're going to enter a phase now, I believe, where it's going to be climate refugees that we're told about and that we have to open our borders to the third world because the reason they have a drought or a, you know they have a bad crop or whatever it is, is because of all the CO2 we put in the air. So you see, we owe it to them to take them in. Because we're the cause of the refugee crisis globally. When any, whenever someone wants to move from their country now, it's, oh, my country is poor because of climate change, which America, is the, America caused. I know to a rational person, it just sounds so absurd. You got a Democrat candidate for the presidency who's already saying it. Others will say it too. This is just, they're, they're living in this delusion, but it's a delusion that's very dangerous because it gives them a tremendous amount of power and but just remember this. Pelosi won't enforce immigration laws, doesn't want to enforce immigration laws. Everything else is just noise. We'll be right back. I like the idea of keeping Congress abreast, but I wouldn't have to do that. Sure. Nancy Pelosi actually said you must have congressional approval. So you disagree with her on that? I disagree. I think most people seem to disagree, but I do like keeping them. They have ideas that intelligent people, they'll come up with some thoughts. I actually learned a couple of things uh, the other day when we had our meeting with Congress, which were, I think, helpful to me. But uh, I do like keeping them abreast, but I don't have to do it illegally. President saying he can hit Iran if he wants to. And this president, if he believes that's the course that he should take, he'll do it. When he says all options are on the table, he means it. He also understands that he does not want to use the option that takes life on any side. Unless that's really what must be done. And I think we should be thankful that we have a commander-in-chief who views his role as such. You know, there was a lot of very unsettling, uh, rah-rah, jingoistic weirdness around Obama and the drone strikes. Yeah, I don't know if you remember, he was, it was like Obama was on Mount Olympus throwing down lightning bolts at the evildoers. That's the way the media treated it. And then, you know, we found out that, well, actually, drone strikes... Yeah, they can be very effective uh, as a, they're a tool, not a strategy. But there are there can be collateral damage from drone strikes, just like any other strike. And becoming too reliant on them means that you are going to rack up a body count of bodies that you don't want to have. But the rules all change. This is we, we live in a society now where the d d the primary determination about anything isn't whether it's right or wrong, whether it breaks the rules or not. But the leftist mind has become one that is overtaken with the overarching purpose. And that means more than anything else. So if, 
if it helps Obama, it doesn't matter what rules were broken or it doesn't matter what standards have to be pushed aside. It is good if it hurts Trump today, as opposed to when Obama was president, then it has to be good. If it hurts Trump, it must be a good thing. Doesn't matter what rules, doesn't matter what the that, that judgment based in facts, based in pre-established norms and standards, that cannot be the primary consideration, not for the left. Two sets of laws, two sets of rules. You see it with, with the Mueller probe, with Hillary Clinton, with judging Trump's foreign policy, with judging, you know, just everything. It's always hypocrisy from the left, always two sets of rules. But I do think that Trump has an understanding of what's at stake right now. It's not just the you know, bad news cycle that he'll get on any, with any given decision. He knows this is real war and peace stuff. This matters. The decisions he makes here, and this could lead into a whole array of options that we very desperately want to avoid. Now, they've announced new sanctions yesterday, uh, sanctions that even go after some of the very top members of the Iranian regime. The Iranians, unsurprisingly, are upset about this. Here is uh, Hassan Rouhani. Remember, they used to say that this guy was a moderate. That's what they used to say. Yeah, sure. Here's Hassan Rouhani talking about, well, really just mocking our White House. Play 16. The White House actions mean it is mentally retarded. Didn't you say you want to negotiate? Well, if you were telling the truth and really want to negotiate, you would not put sanctions on our foreign minister at the same time. This shows you're full of lies. Now, I know that Iran has a, a culture with a lot of negotiation that goes on. Right? You have the bazaar culture, uh, souk culture in Arabic. You have you know, a lot of merchants and exchange of goods and commerce. And this is this is a part of the culture stretching back a very long time because of Iran's place as uh, on the on the spice routes and as a center of trade and on all these different. So they understand at some level what negotiation means. And no, in fact, it does make sense to use leverage in a negotiation when you have it. The Trump administration's position is very straightforward. In fact, it's so straightforward that you think, how could this not have been the position of the administration before it? We've got you, Iran. Economically, you are being strangled. We're not saying we're, we're not telling you that you can no longer exist as a country. We're not even saying you have to change your government. We're just saying you have to change the following things. No more nuclear weapons and a way that we can ensure that will not happen. No more support of terrorist regimes or terrorist entities throughout the Middle East. No more ballistic missile program. And stop being, essentially, Iran, stop being crazy. If Iran stops being crazy, then they can get the sanctions lifted and start making some money and everything can be okay. But we're in a position to force them to do this. That's the whole point. The Obama administration seemed to think that the, the point of the sanctions was to get to get them annoyed enough that they're willing to sit down with us. And then the whole point was just to get a deal, even if it's a bad deal. It's not the way this was supposed to go. It's not the way this was supposed to happen. I hope there is no strike. But if the Iranians go beyond the enrichment uh, levels that were laid out in that deal, deal or no deal, doesn't matter if they go beyond those enrichment levels and we, we know it. There could be a strike, and if there's a strike, I don't know where this thing goes. I do not want war with Iran, but I also know that 
there are some folks in this administration who don't feel the same way. I will be completely honest. I will disclose my, my personal stake in this fight because I have student loans too. And I think it's so funny. A year ago, I was waiting tables in a restaurant and it was literally easier for me to become the youngest woman in American history elected to Congress than it is to pay off my student loan debt. So that should tell you everything about the state of this of this uh, of of our economy and the state of quality of life for working people. She really is an airhead. She is. I mean, she's not the, the dumbest woman in Congress. That could very easily be Maisie Hirono or Maxine Waters. You know, there, there's a few that are certainly up there. Um, but she's close. She's close. She's a talented rabble rouser and talking points machine. That's she does have ability. I'm not saying that. And she has a story and a presentation, a personal presentation that the left is almost obsessed with. But she is not an intellectual, my friends. And when she says things like it is easier when Ocasio-Cortez says it is easier to become a member of Congress than to pay off my student loans. That's like me saying, you know, it is it is easier for me to walk down the street than it is for me to walk down another street. Like, what is, this is, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, what, what did you say? These things have nothing to do with each other. They have nothing to do with each other. Uh, how, how could you assess the, you know, it, it was harder for me to go to the gym this morning than it was for me to apply to college 20 years ago. I mean, what? This is stupidity. This This doesn't... But it's just, it sounds, when she's saying it, she thinks that it sounds good. Uh, you know, she talked about, because she's the youngest woman in American history to get elected to Congress, paying off her student loan debt. Now she makes a hundred and basically 170000 I forget what the exact number is for a member of Congress, which is a very nice salary for somebody who is making a lot more money at her age than I did. That's for sure. And... Yet I made the decision not to take on student loans because I didn't want to have to pay them off. I didn't want to have to deal with student loan debt. Now, some people only have to deal with that at the college level, some I mean, at the a graduate school level. Other people have to deal with it at the college level. But, you know, there, there has to be skin in the game here for people. There has to be a, a personal interest in good decision making. And you see this. This is one of the... the underlying and and foundational falsehoods of contemporary liberal thinking and the liberal approach the leftists in government they're always trying to tell you that if they take choice and responsibility away from you you will be safe from all the bad things so if they make the decisions for you no bad things will happen that is the promise that is the that is the fundamental falsehood of the leftists in America, of the progressive, and, and increasingly, let's just say what it is, the, of the socialists in this country. These people are socialists. They can't get us to socialism tomorrow, but they want to get us to socialism in five, ten, who knows how many years. That's the end goal. Line up what a socialist agenda would look like. They're for all of it. I think this is a great idea. They're all about it. But if we have people that are being told you get to go to college and somebody else will pay for it, 
then what incentive is there for anybody to not go to college? Right. And and then you start to say, well, hold on a second. What also do we do for the people who currently didn't take out loans, which is two thirds of or two thirds of people don't go to undergraduate, finish undergraduate programs in this country? Uh, do, do they get some kind of check in the mail? Are they supposed to subsidize the educations of people that wanted to take out loans? Um, I, I told you, I looked at this choice. I looked at loans and loans and loans for as far as the eye could see or a job. I took a job. I, I, I had this in front of me. Now, if someone had said, oh, Buck, run up $200,000 of debt and we'll just pay it off for you, would I have probably taken the maybe? I mean, the Blaze was an interesting company when it started and I thought I should go work there, but maybe I would have taken that deal. Someone else is paying for it. You're getting a service. It's, it's, education is a service. I'm just saying that an education is a right. Now we get into the, 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 the foreseeable problem of the you have a right to everything mentality, right? So, I mean, at first you have the government removing choice from you and telling you that if you, as long as you don't have to make any decisions, you'll be fine. As long as we make the decisions for you, things will be better for you. That's part one, right? And then you get to, okay, now they're making the choices. Now the government has the power to determine things like, okay, school's going to be free. How much school? How much college? Four years? What about grad programs? That's under the under the Sanders plan, which is just the, you know, manna from heaven, total fantasy land program. Under the Sanders plan, people with, with PhD debt will get that paid off. Let me let you a little secret, which I know from professors, or that I know from professors that I became close with when I was in college, most PhD programs are kind of crap. Most PhDs in the humanities are just an excuse to hyper-specialize in that area of humanity so that you can teach it at a university. Well, there are not that many humanities university positions. First of all, they don't open because people get tenure and they never want to leave. And it's not that high in demand. This is, this is not, I was going to say, this is not rocket science. This is not rocket science. Rocket science pays reasonably well. Engineering, math, the STEM stuff pays reasonably well. It's not... I could be a millionaire. And there's no clear path. The world has become so much more competitive. And that's another part of this that you know, we're just starting to wrap our minds around the fact that you're not competing anymore with just people who live in your area for certain jobs, especially when you get into more competitive markets and markets that are uh, you know, jobs that, that have a, a true global marketplace for them. Anything you're doing, people say, oh, learn to code. OK, yeah, learn, learn to code. That's easy. Of course, if you say that to journalists, you get kicked off Twitter. Yeah, learn to code. That'll, that'll solve all the problems. Um, do the people who say that realize that you're going to be competing against coders from Beijing, Mumbai, Tokyo, Rio de Janeiro, you name it? Do the people that you know, say that realize that this work can be, in, not, it's not even really outsourced. It can be done by people all over the world. And the digital work and information-based work is more competitive than it has ever been because it is more open to people than it has ever been around the world. And that has pressure on this. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of changes going on right now. You know, we, we have a, we, we look back at what's going on with student loans and college and, and the American, I mean, the American higher education system is very 
in the span of human history, this is a blip on the screen. You know, this is very, uh, very short. We don't even have much of a track record to speak of here. And it's changed dramatically, right? It used to be all male and now it's co-ed and they've changed a lot of it. What makes anyone think that we have the system that we're supposed to have right now anyway? If you ask me just realistically, is four years of undergraduate necessary? I would say no, it should be two. It's high school and then you should do two years beyond that. And I think you should do a gap year. And you might say, Buck, well, who are you to come up with this? Well, I'm just telling you what I think. Where do this four years come from? Why does anyone think that that's the way to do it? You know, you look at European countries, they have different systems. In European countries, which the liberals are obsessed with, they track people and put them into different paths so that only some people are going to go try to get a, an advanced degree. They're not encouraging everybody to try to be a, you know, a uh, basket weaving major with a Ph.D. and other kinds of weaving, I don't know, pottery or something. I know I kind of I kind of lost it there for a second. I was sometimes when you reach for that that moment of clever and you just fall flat on your I just as I'm fond of saying and old team buck knows this, sometimes you're on radio, you belly flop in the shallow end of the pool with a really nasty sunburn and you know that just happens. See, whenever I say that though, you you think about the time you did that when you were a kid and you go, "Ow." You remember. That was rough. You remember that was no fun. All right, I've got more on the, on the whole student loan debt. Oh, I didn't get into this whole second part of So the one is, is that you don't, it's not about choice anymore and responsibility. Now the choice is obvious because you have no responsibility. Somebody else will pay for this for you. That's, that's the way the libs set this up. But then it's, okay, how far does it go? When does it stop? What's enough? Is it the best schools? Is it all schools? We've got more on this loan because, look, the, the loan story, even if you don't care that much about it, although it's over a trillion dollars, so it's a lot of money, folks. This is, this is big money. It's not a little money. It's a big money. Uh, if if you, you dig into this more, you see this is really the heart of the whole pitch for 2020 for the libs, for the Democrats. We're just going to give you free stuff that other people are going to pay for. You're not going to pay for it. Somebody else will. Well, then when somebody else looks around and says, well, who's who's the somebody else? Aren't I the somebody else? Yeah. You are. That's what that's where the real problem is. You know, this is it's all the 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 root lie of the Bernie Sandersism that has overtaken the Democratic Party is that there's tons of money out there for everybody to have everything they want and only the rich fat cats who won't notice it being gone will pay. That's a lie. That's a lie. We have more on that lie, though, in a moment. I was mentoring this girl, that this young woman, her name was Andrea. She was about three or four years younger than me. She had gotten into all of these prestigious universities, but she was given no uh, student loan assistance, no real, she was given no um, scholarships. All of her student aid was presented to her in the form of loans. And she came from a solid middle-class family. She was not exceedingly wealthy. And, uh, and so she really, she got into her dream college, but her dream college offered her no scholarships, just loans. Her dream college, my friends. She got into her dream college. Who are we to refuse to pay for this woman that we don't know's dream college? 
Did somebody get forced to pay for your dream college? Did somebody get forced to pay for my dream MBA program that I didn't go to because it was too expensive? Because the answer was no. Now, just like anything else, there is scarcity in higher education. There are not endless slots at Yale. There are not endless spots in the freshman class at Stanford. A lot of this is driven by, you know, academic application stuff, but also sports and minority status. And there's all these other things that come into play. But higher education has become wildly expensive. If you ask any of you, I mean, some of you who are listening to this know what I'm talking about because you're boomers and you dealt with this. But, you know, the tuition at elite schools 40 years ago, 50 years ago, was such that if you worked, you know, a summer job or two, I mean, you, you I'm not saying you pay for all of it, but you make a dent in it in a summer job. You know, the, the tuition at at uh, Ivy League schools back in the 60s was like a few thousand dollars a semester or a few thousand dollars a year. Was not a lot of money. I mean, you'd say buck, but it's inflated. Yeah, but if you adjust it in today's dollars, it's still like 15,000, maybe 20,000. It's not 60,000, which is where it is right now, which is insane. And the schools are setting these prices. And, you know, they do all this building of these, just these massive, really kind of narcissistic buildings and, and uh, these you know, these libraries and sports complexes and all these things. I wish they were spending more money. It's not really the libraries that spend the money. It's on the sports complexes and the dormitories. And it's, it's all this stuff. Like, you're supposed to go to four years of some, you know, magical wonder camp where your every need is catered to. You're really just supposed to go somewhere and study a bunch and read a lot, which is also why I know people yell at me. I think athletic recruiting for colleges, for the most part, is insane. It's just it just makes no sense. These are not minor league sports franchises. Who cares how good the sports teams are? Oh, book, but it's schools. I know all of you who love your everyone. This is where I get booed by ninety percent of folks, but the ten percent who really listen to me know that I'm telling, I'm speaking the truth. I'm not saying we can't have those teams. I'm just saying there should be a separate program where you get an education while you are a semi-pro athlete at a college. It should not be this pretense that they're student athletes just like everybody else. And no, why? Anyway, that's a whole. I know it's a whole other topic. I just jumped into it. Oh, I know who's going to settle this for us, though. The, the one voice of wisdom that we really need on this topic to make it all make sense. Ilhan Omar is going to bring it all home for you, folks. Play nine. I stand before you on behalf of 45 million Americans, 45 million people who feel they can't purchase their first home, 45 million people who feel like they can't start a family, 45 million people who have dreams of opening up a business or going to public service but are held back by a mountain of debt. They are the debt generation. We are told by some politicians that this debt is our fault that if we want to achieve the American dream we have to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps well we're here today to say student debt is not the result of bad choices or behavior it is the result of a system that tells students to get an education and go to college in order to have a stable life but then does not provide the resources to afford that education Provide the resources, they say, to afford the education. We also have a big 
social push in this country for home ownership. Uh, is someone going to pay your mortgage? I'd like someone. To, I don't own a home. I don't know when I'll ever be able to own a home. It's very hard to save money in New York or D.C. It's very expensive to buy anything here. Does somebody else get to pay my mortgage? Because I, I, I'm in a society where if you're not a homeowner, you're really left out in a lot of ways. You're on a, on a hamster wheel you can never get off of. Why won't someone pay my mortgage? I don't understand. I have a human right to live in not just a house, by the way, by AOC logic, my dream house. So, I mean, I'm not that extravagant, folks. I'm not that crazy. Like, I just, you know, I'd like maybe a couple of acres, Malibu, direct view of the ocean, small pool, you know, maybe 15 by 20 and three, four bedrooms. I'm I'm talking, you know, eight, 10 mil, maybe that's, you know, come on. The taxpayer can afford that's a rounding error for the taxpayer. That's my dream house, though. Right? We're not talking about just a house. That's my dream house. I want someone to pay for my dream house. That's what AOC is saying. Somebody should pay for the dream college. Now, they created a system where anyone can pay for their dream college, but then they just have to figure out a way to pay off that debt. And now they're saying, oh, well, you, you should be able to get that dream, that top level of whatever it is that you want, but not have to deal with the responsibility of it afterwards. Think about this logic applied to everything else. I'm not going to buy a a responsible first car. I'm not going to go get a Honda Civic. I'm going to go buy a Maserati. It's my dream car. I deserve that. Oh, wait, but somebody else should pay for that because, I mean, think of how hard I work to be able to buy that Maserati. It just goes in a circle. This is the destruction of individual responsibility, and it is the enlarging of the state at the expense of individual responsibility and the replacement of freedom with the promise that the state will hug you and keep you warm and safe and make all the problems go away. This student loan issue beyond the trillion plus dollars we're talking about is really ultimately about the nature of citizen and state and the extent that the federal government can just determine what the market should bear. I was right again. Let's just say it. Let's just take a moment. I know you were with me on this team. I know you supported me on this. and I know you saw what I saw. But perhaps I should say we were right again. How many times do we go through this exercise? Let's take a step back. The Kavanaugh accusers. Very beginning, I said, no, nope, not buying it. This is all this is a smear. It's a hit job. It's a lie. Jesse Smollett. No, nope, sorry. Not buying it. This is a lie. It's a hate crime hoax. No way. When people really believed it, oh, it was a national news story. I said, no, I'm not, not with this. Sorry. Doesn't wash. Doesn't make sense. How many times do we go through this where the media believe something and we know they're wrong right away? Why are we so much smarter? We, including a lot of you who are listening, have very busy lives, lots of stuff going on that you don't get to, you know, read newspapers for hours on end. I mean, that's my job. I do this for hours on end. But we know, we know that this is crap. How is it that CNN doesn't know that it's crap? Why can't they figure, oh, that's right, because they don't want to figure it out, because they don't want the truth, because they don't really care. It's all about bashing Trump. E. Jean Carroll last week came out right when she's on a book tour saying that Donald Trump uh, viciously, criminally, feloniously raped her 
in the Bergdorf Goodman department store in New York City about 30 years ago. She claims that she has a dress she's never worn since then or some kind of a coat dress and claims that this is what happened. And even putting aside all the things I said initially, and this is how I did, this is how I was taught at the CIA to analyze sources. This is that there's there's a whole process as an intelligence officer. You learn how, how do you try to verify? How do you try to figure out who you're dealing with? Because your source matters so much. You're just you can't trust their word. You have to know more than just what they're presenting you. You have to have a context for it. And you have to validate information. I thought to myself, well, let's just step aside from what's clearly problematic right away. Things like uh, she didn't tell anybody. She says she told two friends, but, you know, who knows? And she didn't tell the police. This is 30 years ago. There's no way to verify whether she was even in the department store that day. There's no way for Trump to disprove this. It's a wildly reckless, possibly life and career destroying thing for Trump to do. Just it, it's so out of out of whack with what you would expect from a guy who is, uh, you know, a, a, a playboy, but not somebody that has ever credibly, in my opinion, from what I have heard, and I might be, if I'm missing one, let me know, has never credibly been accused of raping anybody, despite all this stuff, all oh, this woman and that woman. Okay, if there's so many women coming out, what's the one that's really true? What's the one that we're supposed to say that one's the really believable one. It's all this, you know, and they use sexual assault and rape interchangeably, which is not the same thing. You know, making a pass at a woman is not the same thing as actually, and legally this is true, penetrating somebody in their, you know, general areas. This is, there, there are differences here that are always brushed over by the media. But step aside from all that for a second. I knew E. Jean Carroll was crazy because she was sounding like a crazy person. Oh, I won't. I wouldn't bring charges against Trump because that would be disrespectful to the migrants at the border being raped. That's something that a crazy person would say. One has nothing to do with the other. And she does a disservice to the real victims of sexual assault, to the real victims of rape, of whom there are far too many in America and around the world, by bizarrely politicizing what she claims was a, a horrible rape committed against her, which clearly did not happen. But as if that weird, and then also saying that she wished, this is the interview she had already done. And when I came up, listen to the show yesterday, I said, no, I'm not, not credible. Don't buy, I don't, I don't believe this person. I think she's lying. And then she gave an interview where she said that she wished she had asked Donald Trump for his tax returns back then. Ha, ha, ha. Really? We're going to make jokes about this? Victims of sexual assault, and I've spoken to them, and victims of sexual assault that come forward with these with very serious allegations, it's a trauma. It's not a hee hee hee. Let's make little political jokes about a thing. It's not some. It's not funny. It's a crime. It's a crime that every red-blooded American man knows is a disgrace to his manhood, to his decency, to his humanity. And yet, in this instance, this woman is smirking, making bizarre comments about this offers no real proof i told you when they brought up the dna and the on the coat oh uh you know she didn't say yes you're right that's a good idea i should do that she said oh you know i don't know maybe. what well wouldn't you want to be able to prove this i mean i i 
if this had happened to a friend of mine, I would want to I would want to stand by her and, you know, walk into the precinct with her and say, let's get this guy. Right. Ah, but then last night, the mask really slipped. It was already slipping. It fell off entirely. Oh, and where did it occur? CNN. Of course. CNN, the place where if you bash Trump, whether you're stealing from paraplegics like Avenatti or, you know, go down the line, all the slime balls that CNN will put on TV that bash Trump doesn't matter because it just serves their their audience is full of lunatics who think that Trump really is this terrible human being that needs to be bashed at every second all the time. But Anderson Cooper on his oh so serious journalism show had E. Jean Carroll on. I wouldn't have her on this show unless I was going to be able to interrogate her. And has her on, and they're being all treating her like she's just this. And man, did they step in it last night at Fake News R Us, aka CNN. Here's E. Jean Carroll on the oh so serious Anderson Cooper show, Play 10. I feel like a victim. I was not thrown on the ground and ravished. Which the word rape carries so many sexual connotations. This was not. This was not sexual. It just. It. It hurt. It just. What. It just. You know. But I think most people think of rape as a. I mean, it is a violent assault. It is not. I think most people think of rape as being sexy. Mm. Let's take a short break. Think of the fantasies. Mm. We're going to take a quick break. If you can stick around, we'll talk more on the other side. You're fascinating to talk to. He can't get to that commercial break fast enough. He can't hit the uh, he can't hit the abort button quickly enough. Get me out of here, man. She just nuked the segment. She did. She nuked that segment. Quote, I think most people think of rape as being sexy. He panicked there for I mean, Anderson Cooper had a moment, a little panic there goes, oh, my God, what has she done? Because he knows she did it on his show. That was a, a a giant manure pile that had just fallen from the sky atop the very prim and proper Anderson Cooper. She did it. I think most people think of rape as being sexy. Think of the fantasies, she says. She's supposedly recounting being sexually penetrated against her will by a effectively a stranger in a department store and she's talking about how people think rape is sexy and think of the fantasies and then tries to flirt with Anderson Cooper as he's desperately trying to bail out of the segment says you know you're really interesting to talk to my friends this is a person with problems and not problems that have anything to do with Donald Trump or what he did this reminds me of when they put uh, a very clearly disturbed and, and you know, having a... And I look, I've talked to Sam Number before. He's a nice guy. But he, I, he was clearly in an altered state going on CNN, and they just put him on show after show after show, seeing how, what, how much crazy he could do. CNN, they're parasites on the human soul now. There's no decency in what they do. There's no honor in how they present themselves. They're just slime, desperate for importance and ratings and power. They're just slime. Donald Trump is a husband, a father, a grandfather, president of the United States. 
They really have no problem with putting uh, the, the equivalent of a crazy bag lady who's running around the street with a sign that says the world is ending tomorrow. I mean, putting her on TV to say the president of the United States raped her 30 years ago with no evidence, no proof, and no corroboration. They think that that's journalism. This is why I have so much contempt for CNN as an organization. There are reasons for it. I think it is justified. In fact, I think it is increasingly necessary to have contempt for them. Why is it that you and I knew that E. Jean Carroll was full of it? And now everyone's backing away from it. Oh, I don't know. Uh, a little, okay, maybe not. Let's move on to the next one. Why did we know? Why did multi-billion dollar CNN and the, all these other newspapers that were covering this and giving her airtime on, on the different cable channels, why couldn't they figure this out? But we could, folks. Ask that question, and we all know what the answer is. On the Supreme Court, uh, will you put forward a nominee uh, between now and the election if there's an opening on the Supreme Court? Uh, would I do that? Of yeah. course. Do you have any recommendations? <laughs> well, you have a big long list, right? I do. Yeah. I have a good list. I have a good list already chosen. I have a beautiful list of great, very talented people. Uh, absolutely. But do you square that with Merrick Garland? No, I have a lot of respect for Judge Garland, by the way. I have to tell you that. Trump says he would fill a Supreme Court vacancy. If one came up before the 2020 election, this was an interview today. It was actually The Hill did the interview. And my old uh, friend and colleague, Sagar and Jetty, uh, was doing the interview there with a The Hill's White House reporter. Um, and uh, they ask about the 2020 election and, and the Supreme Court vacancy, which, look, I, I don't think that this is going to come up, but it is an interesting exercise in what if, because. The election that we're heading into now is going to be, I don't say that this is the most, because every election is the most important election in your lifetime, and there's a lot, of, a lot of nonsense around this. The election that we are heading into in terms of the frenzy on the left and the amount of just psychosis that will be on display and the people that will be screaming at the sky and marching in the streets and saying that Trump will literally destroy the world if he wins four more years in office. I mean, that, that it's going to be like nothing we've ever seen before. Because remember, when he was running against Hillary, yes, they hated him, and but they always thought that they were going to get, like the joke was kind of on Trump the whole time. Because when the voting happened, Hillary was just going to crush him. And then all of his clownery and all of his nonsense, according to the libs during the campaign, was just going to be that. It was going to be, you know, what what a waste, right? What a, what a joke this guy is. There's just no need to take him seriously at all. But then he won. So now you've had Trump in office. He will have been in office for three years when this campaign is really in full swing when we get into the general election. And Libs have completely lost their minds. I mean, he broke them by winning the election and now has just continued to drive them deeper into the depths of insanity just by being president and by being a pretty good president, too. I mean, they won't ever admit that, but you and I know it's the case. Presidency's going well. I have, you know, some complaints about it, but I would have complaints about any presidency. I mean, I, I, I'm not here to talk about perfection or just be a cheerleader for whoever's on my team, but overall, it's good. I'm also here to be objective and honest about what's gone well as much as I possibly can. And they hate Trump even more because it's going well. But I bring all this up because 
going into this election cycle that we all know will be bonkers from just in every way and, and the way that the left is going to set this whole thing up it will be a a constant series of hyperbole and crisis and the the world is ending the sky is falling anything anyone to stop trump can you imagine just for a moment imagine that a liberal supreme court justice we don't have to speculate as to who it is because we don't know it doesn't matter any of the liberals on the supreme court let's say for personal reasons had to step step aside you know for health reasons had to step aside from that role uh, I, I don't know how the country would be able to, I mean, the libs, I don't know how they'd handle it. I, I think that there would be, there would be people rending their garments and, and actually gnashing their teeth in the streets. Like we were about to be hit by the space rock that would destroy all life. I mean, they would just completely lose it. And I know what the arguments would be too. Oh, we, but Merrick Garland and there's this, you know, agreement about an election year. No, really the agreement is that whoever's got the votes has the votes. I think we should all stop this pretense that there are binding agreements that senators and members of Congress make to each other about the rules that they just come up with. That's not really the case, is it? Look, this was all put in motion by Harry Reid, who decided that they were going to just start going bare knuckle to get judges through. And people said at the time, okay, if they're going to go, if they're going to go nuclear option, this is going to become an arms race to get ideologically aligned judges on the bench because we all know how important that is and how judges unfortunately play far too large a role in this country when it comes to policy and lawmaking and everything else they're supposed to interpret law that's supposed to make law judges make law a lot in this country but with all that stuff going on you can just imagine the arguments they will make and and how they'll say oh you know Merrick Garland they still refer to the Kavanaugh seat as a stolen stolen Supreme Court seat as if it was owed or or given to or bequeathed to Merrick Garland. And even seeing the recent decision that Gorsuch came down with the liberals uh, to say that a gun stat, a federal gun statute was too vague, which really bothered a lot of the, the conservatives on the court, uh, seeing the conservatives when they really believe the law is a certain way, even if that's not how they're ideological leanings would take them they will go with the liberals on the court liberals tend to just be in lockstep on this stuff on any important policy matter that doesn't calm us down at all anyway this is my way of of telling you that trump saying that he'll fill a vacancy before 2020 doesn't mean all that much right now but if we get to the point where this really happens i i don't know it'll be the it'll be the ultimate sharknado Trumpathon, world ending. I, I don't even know what you could call it. It would just it would be the craziest thing you've ever seen in politics because the liberals will they've already lost their minds. So I, what's beyond losing their minds? What's what's crazier than totally nuts? That's where the libs would go if a Supreme Court vacancy opened up between now and election day and Trump filled it. We'll be right back. People who voted for the current president do not agree with our definition of fairness. They are a highly biased political machine um, that is bent on never letting somebody like Donald Trump come to power again. 2020 is certainly on top of my old organization. 
organization, Trust and Safety, is top of mind. They've been working on it since 2016 to make sure we're ready for 2020. Elizabeth Warren is saying that yeah. we should break up Google. And like, I love her, but she's very misguided. Like, that will not make it better. It'll make it worse because now all these smaller companies who don't have the same resources that we do will be charged with preventing the next Trump situation. It's like a small company cannot do it. That was a senior executive at Google who you might have heard there. I know the audio was a little tough for a second, but said that they want to make sure they don't have another Trump-like situation. This is a senior Google executive named Jen Jenai, and she is caught on audio here. This is all from Project Veritas doing their undercover journalism. Jen Janai of Google said the following. Elizabeth Warren is saying we should break up Google. And like, I love her, but she's very misguided. Like that will not make it better. That will make it worse because all these smaller companies who don't have the same resources that we do will be charged with preventing the next Trump situation. It's like a small company cannot do that. Jen Janai is the head of the Responsible Innovation part of google that's what it's called responsible innovation which yes indeed does sound like an orwellian name for department it's like the department of niceness and good people hmm why do you have to call it that uh, responsible innovation at google that monitors and evaluates the implementation of artificial intelligence technologies and janai goes on in this video which project veritas has posted today and i believe i was seeing at least some chatter on social media suggesting that this was pulled off of YouTube which is owned by Google so that's in a sense not surprising at all but here's what uh, here's what Jen and I went on to say quote we all got screwed over in 2016 again it wasn't just us it was like the people got screwed over the news media got screwed over like everybody got screwed over. So we're rapidly been like, what happened there and how do we prevent it from happening again? We're also training our algorithms like if 2016 happened again, would we have would the outcome be different? The algorithms are not neutral. Not only are they not neutral, the algorithms are trying to push an agenda. There are human beings developing all these behind the scenes. These human beings are overwhelmingly progressive. They are left-wing in their political ideology. They are working for companies that affect everything in your day-to-day life right now. All of the commerce that you're engaging in, all the communications, all the news, your email. I mean, maybe if you try really hard, you can avoid the reach of Google until you have to do an internet search. And what are you really going to go to? You're going to go to Yahoo or dogpile.com, askjeeves.com. I remember that. People thought that was going to be a real big deal. I remember the early days of the internet. Ask Jeeves. That was fun. Uh, Turns out that no, Google has a huge dominant share of search. And that, that is power that no other media company really has. When you type in anything you want to look up, the first hits that come up and how it's presented to you and what is presented to you, that determines what your interaction with information is a vast majority of the time. I forget what the statistics are, but 
Just think about it in your own day-to-day life. How often do you go to the second page of search results? I mean, unless you're really drilling down on something, if you type in, you know, best barbecue in Austin, Texas, whatever's on that first page is probably going to be what you're going to go check out. I know a lot of you are like, Buck, I'm a native in Austin because I'm listening on KLBJ. and I do not need Google to tell me the best barbecue. All right, that's fine, but I'm talking about for us East Coast folk when we go out to visit. Do you then go deeper than the first page? No, of course not. You go with whatever that really is the first few search results that most people focus on. And there's this assumption that whatever comes up is what should come up. And the truth is that, yeah, there's a lot of different metrics and there's weighted averages and all this different stuff that goes into it, all this math and fancy, fancy engineering mumbo jumbo and all that, right? But at the end of the day, there are people involved in this. And, you know, how much of this stuff do we have to see before we realize that the Sergey Brin and the other senior Google execs who are basically having a public cry session after Trump won the election and all this other stuff that keeps popping up about search engine uh, bias and shadow banning and just... There's there's so many ways to stack the deck and the left is obsessed with this because I, mean, I really do believe that when the arguments of the left are made as they are in real language that normal people can understand, not coded terms and, you know, oh, it's all about choice. No, like let's talk about what this really is when the left has to make its case publicly and it can't hide and it can't obfuscate and it can't cheat. The American people turn away from it. But when the left can have a dominant position in the culture, in now the platforms, in the information dissemination, in our day-to-day instantaneous communication systems, when the left can control all of that, think of what that means for their ability to push ideas and, as importantly, to suppress ideas. Think about what that means when they can determine what the first thing is you see about a candidate on any given day. I mean, we are going into an election here. We are going into an election where the social media game of the various candidates is really do or die. I mean, the social media stuff is, is going to determine a large, uh, in, in large part, who is able to get a bit ahead in the Democratic primary. And then, of course, in the general, it's going to be a total free-for-all, and we have this notion that we cling to, and I can understand why. It's just you would assume the way it's all been set up, Google's motto is don't be evil, and oh, man, they're just a bunch of fun kids out in Silicon Valley sitting on beanbag chairs and getting sushi that's paid for them for lunch and having meditation sessions out on the green. And No, these are libs. These are progressives with a lot of money who are living in the one of one of the most radical left-wing echo chamber regions in the country, which is Silicon Valley, the San Francisco Bay Area. It's the only place, the only metropolitan area in the country that by political affiliation is more liberal than the swamp in Washington, D.C., where I'm broadcasting to you from right now. And they think that they have not just the right... And legally speaking, right now they do, keep that in mind, but they believe that they have an obligation 
to the, the you know, fundamental human rights and the fundamental leftist, this is how it has to be mentality. To make you think certain things and to change your perception of the world around you so that it molds to the progressive orthodoxy, which dominates the Democratic Party and which has had far too much leeway in the culture for a very long time and increasingly dominance in uh, in the digital media culture. If they shut this stuff down, how do we even how do we even fight back if they start to and how do we know what right do we have even to find out who Google is trying to help in, in the next election? And, you know, this is why when people talk about campaign finance and all these ridiculous rules about, oh, you know, you can only give this much money, some arbitrary number. You can't give that much money. I mean, CNN is a giant in-kind donation to the Democratic Party and whichever Democrat candidate at any time it decides should be the nominee. I mean, CNN is a giant walking, talking de- Democrat National Committee donation. It is just giving money to the DNC, to the Democrat apparatus, but that doesn't get counted. When... You know, Anderson Cooper goes on TV at night and is always favorable to the Democrats and always nasty to the Republicans, undermining them, pretending he's neutral. That doesn't get tabulated. That doesn't get that. There's no uh, you know cost, profit and loss that's done on this. No, nothing. Now, I'm not suggesting there should be, but I'm also not somebody who runs around talking about how we need to get the money out of politics. We need to get this is. We should have as much as possible a speech free-for-all out there. And I think the efforts to regulate speech generally backfire more than they help. But when you are talking about social media in the current era, what you have are companies that have the protections of platforms, but the politics and the editorial line of publishers. And beyond that, they're also dishonest about the fact that they're taking an editorial position on this. That when they claim that dead naming, for example, on Twitter, referring to someone who is transgender's former name is some horrible act that should be severely punished. Uh, where is the where's the pushback on this? Well, what can you really do? Well, you can stop. OK, sure, you can stop using their platform, but this is how people communicate now. And this is why you start to say, well, could could one company have bought up the phone lines and then when it came time for the election, decided to switch off all the phones in areas that look like they were going to go Republican or, you know, is, is that OK? Uh, how much control over communications in this country are private companies allowed to have? The FCC does all kinds of things. They got to approve mergers. And you've noticed they're trying to go after Sinclair again. They're going after Sinclair now, they say, because of buying some sports channels or something. The Democrats are just targeting Sinclair because they they don't want to win the debate. They want to be the only side in the debate. That's the leftist mentality. Why have to even deal with an opposition? It's just so much better, so much cleaner, so much easier to be the only position. And unless we get it together and see what's going on at places like Google right now, and hold them to account. And yeah, maybe this means we either they either get broken up or we have to start conservative platforms. It can't mean just sit here and try to make the case about how we should have neutral free speech and respect for all sides. And we're just going to lose on that. They're just going to keep kicking us in the face. 
And that seems to be the position I see of a lot of conservatives who are of the never-Trump mold. Well, you know, we'll just make the case, and eventually they'll come over to us. No, they won't. We'll be right back. Do you want to take it off or anything? Yeah, I do. I just want to So that was just a little quick snippet, which I'll read you the uh, the transcript of it. But the Jussie Smollett video has come out, and this guy, look, I have, I have, I, I can tell you, I have no sympathy whatsoever for this guy, because it's not enough that he pulled off the dumbest, most absurd hoax hate crime, perhaps in the history of hoax hate crimes. Uh, it's it's not enough that he did that. Then he had the the sheer temerity, the gall, to stand before the American people in in front of the press and hold a kind of impromptu, uh, impromptu press conference, where after his his friend essentially in the uh, U.S. attorney, I mean in the uh, state's attorney's office, made this whole thing go away for him, he thought it was acceptable to lecture the American people, about how he didn't do anything wrong and everybody should have believed him. And that he knows himself and he knows who he is. And I mean, it was just too much. It was OJ searching for the real killers after the unthinkably stupid verdict that found him not guilty, right? I mean, it was it was similar in, in terms of just what a brazen, in-your-face liar. But the good news is Jesse Small is also an idiot. He's not a smart person. And he's not a disciplined person either. He's not, from what I can see on this video, a particularly good actor. That video has police entering his home. This is right after the attack. Because now the cops have let, they've let the floodgates open, man. They want people to see as much Smollett stuff as possible. They want everyone to see exactly what's going on here. Because Jussie threw them all under the bus. You know, he was saying that the, you know, he, 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 told them these lies and they wasted all this time. This is in a city with a terrible homicide epidemic in Chicago. You have detectives waste over, I think, $100,000, what they estimated of time on this case, man hours and everything else. And then what? It's the, the system is racist. I and mean, what's the explanation for this afterwards? It's, it's absurd. Absurd. Makes it seem like the cops were out to get him. You know, the cops were so sure that he's guilty, but they, they must just really be out and after him. So the police entered his home there. <laughs> you have to see this video. It's amazing. Uh, I know we're on radio, so I can't show you the video. But they enter his home, and they say uh, they see him, and he's standing there looking utterly ridiculous with this noose that's around his neck that he left on his neck that he says they put on him, and he says they poured bleach on him. And the police enter his home. They say, do you want to take it off about the, about the noose? He says, yeah, I do. I just wanted you to see it. They poured bleach on me. I don't want to be filmed, said the TV star. Uh, those, are all, those are all quotes from the, except for the last thing, from the video. Uh, okay, if you had somebody throw a noose around your neck, I'm pretty sure that the moment you weren't in that threat situation, you'd probably remove the noose from your neck. I don't think you'd walk up to your apartment and leave the noose on your neck and that you would tell the cops, I wanted you to see it, like see it on me. This is uh, Jussie doth protest too much about the noose that he clearly put around 
his it, own neck. Did you notice the material of the rope, Buck? Did that seem like it was a little flimsy to you? Oh, yeah. The, the, it, I mean, when you think of a noose, like there's just certain things that entered my mind. And when I saw that, I was like, it looked like shoelaces around his neck. Mike, think about how hard you would fight to stop somebody from getting a rope around your neck. I mean, theoretically, this could be a lethal incident, right? I mean, someone Absolutely. could strangle you, right? Absolutely. They're going to get this like loose, flimsy rope around you, and you're going to leave it on, and the only thing that you have on you is a little, a little tiny scratch on your face? It was that easy to get this noose around your... I mean, it's just it's crazy. The whole thing, man. It's, yeah. it's, but you have to... The video is amazing, because you're like, this is... It's so stupid... It's hard to believe if Jussie Smollett was trying to, if he was tasked as, as an acting exercise with coming up with the most absurd hate crime hoax possible, R really being in a situation where you'd say there's no way something could be more ridiculous than this. I don't think he could do a better job than what we saw with this. It is so dumb that if you were trying to come up with a laughably false hate crime hoax and yet folks how you know i said this from the beginning i'm like up oh, jesse smollett i don't buy it jesse smollett updates nope doesn't add up story doesn't make any sense and that was before we had the video and the tape we knew the full i just knew the story didn't make any sense as soon as you had the additional evidence you realize how incredibly dumb this whole thing was media went for it though just like they went for eugene carroll because they're either enabled by their trump derangement syndrome or they're just so blinded by it that it, Trump derangement syndrome turns, turns the media into idiots. Ilhan Omar has gotten into trouble in recent months because of anti-Semitic comments, but that's not the only thing that is bedeviling the uh, congresswoman from Minnesota. There are some very troubling stories that are out there right now about a possible marriage fraud scheme involving Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. I've been reading about this, but not all over this story, quite the same way as some of the intrepid reporters out there. And we've got one of them joining us now to tell us exactly what is going on. Tiana Lowe is with us. She's a commentary writer for the uh, Washington Examiner. Uh, thank you so much, Tiana. Great to have you. Thank you for having me. All right. So walk us through this, if you would, please. What What is the backstory here of exactly how Ilhan Omar's marriage to her brother is a headline that i'm seeing now so okay what we know is this Ilan omar from 2002 to 2008 was married in a faith tradition to a man named ahmed hersey she says that in 2008 they split in their faith tradition and then she married this guy ahmed elmi in 2009 and she says that although they did not legally divorce until 2017 that they split up in their faith tradition in 2011, and then she reconciled with her first husband. However, there's been a lot of mounting evidence over the past three years that her marriage with Elmi was sort of a sham. So in 2016, when she was originally running for state Congress, local news outlets, um, I think it was Alpha News, obtained screenshots that have since been deleted, so I couldn't independently verify them, that show her and uh, Elmi sort of referring to each other in a sibling-like manner, and it contradicts what she says in her divorce decree, which she said that she had no way of contacting Elmi after summer of 2011, but there are screenshots that show them in contact in a very friendly and casual manner 
from 2013-2014. So what I did is I went to Minnesota and I obtained traffic and petty misdemeanor violation records from the county courthouse that show that she and Hersey both reported living in the same Cedar Riverside home from 2009 through 2011 when she was supposedly married to another guy. So it seems like it was a sham marriage. And if you believe these screenshots and if you take them at face value, they do imply that, that Omar and Elmi are related. And and now I would assume that there would be a pretty easy way to make this whole thing go away if, in fact, Ilhan Omar had not had not had a sham marriage uh, and uh, with with her brother. I mean, that's where I think people go, wait, what's going on here? But it's obviously for immigration purposes to try to evade immigration laws, assuming that's the case. Why hasn't the Omar camp been able to just put this whole thing to bed? This shouldn't be hard. So that's the thing. It, it, there's a very realistic scenario in which a married couple divorces and because the divorce was amicable enough and because finances were tight, that they would maybe still live in the same home because the because one person can't afford a new property. That If that was the case, they could have just come out without the story, you know? But the fact that she's being this evasive, you know, so she's rejected the Washington Examiner's um, request for comment multiple times now, and she's, she's, you know, always sort of evaded the issue. She initially, when the story first, when this first broke on Powerline in 2016, so all the way back during that state campaign, she first just accused the blog of engaging in Islamophobia and racism and sexism, only then coming out and clarifying this messy timeline. But it's further complicated by the fact that she also violated federal and state tax law because she jointly filed her taxes in 2014 and 2015 with Hersey while she was still legally married to another man. Hmm. So there's a tax component of this story, too. Uh what what do the statute of limitations do we know would that apply here for these for the immigration violation and also for the I mean, for tax stuff i think that's a pretty long tail on that yeah and the biggest thing i think at this point because because only appears that he never obtained citizenship um in the united states however if 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 the screenshots are authentic and if people can find more evidence it does seem like Omar could have perjured herself during her divorce by saying that she had no means of contacting Elmi after 2011 in her attempt to get a default divorce, in which it's basically a single-party divorce. And it seems like that was not the case. Um, Again, all of this wouldn't be fish. Marriages are complicated things, and usually I would say that someone's personal life, even if they're a public figure, is not a matter of public concern. Um, in this case, we're talking about multiple violations of the law from, you know, the campaign finance violations, the tax policy violations, the potential perjury charges, and then maybe something weird with immigration. And also just the fact that she's lied not only to, you know, the public, but specifically to her own constituents about this. And what would we need to have to find out definitively, you know, what are the missing pieces of either evidence or testimony? What, what would you need to know to finally nail this thing down? Is there is there something that you're hoping to get? So it would be interesting to see what the North Dakota records say. Other outlets have reported on the North Dakota records um, that imply that she and Hershey were also living together there. I independently verified that. But from all of and purposes, those seem pretty legitimate. Um, I mean, honestly, it's just a matter of if there's any way to obtain records proving 
um, you know, not just screenshots proving that she was in contact with Omi. And it's just a, it's a difficult thing because, you know, until her own party and until more members of the media start pressing her for answers about this, she can just continue to avoid it. All right. Well, Tiana Lowe at the Washington Examiner, thank you so much for telling us what's going on here. If you get some definitive answers, please come back and let us know if, if in fact, this thing is what we think it is. Thank you. All right, team, we'll be right back. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for Roll Call. team fantastic to uh have you here with me for roll call purposes as always facebook.com slash buck sexton if you want to be a part of roll call that's all you have to do it is very easy it is very very straightforward so let's get right to it shall shall we stan right the vitamin d sweet spot and its relationship to aging. He sent me a video, and he says that if you want the best part, you got to go check this out. 4,000 IUS has been proven in studies to reduce genetic aging, has 1,500 functions in your body. 70% of Americans are deficient in vitamin D. Stan, I don't know if you work for the vitamin D lobby or what, but you know, I don't know what to tell you about this vitamin D situation. I'm, I'm, I just read the studies that, that are out there. I don't get... Uh, and I don't have any particular knowledge or expertise about this stuff. Mesa writes, Buck, listening to you talk about the Netflix documentary, The Way They are, the way they See Us, or I think it's When They See Us, you should watch the second episode. They find a way to blame Trump. I couldn't take it anymore and move to a different show. I tried the movie Slasher, supposed to be a thriller about a serial killer. Turns out to be a movie about how a normal white American family is evil. And a Muslim family is the victim of the white families. And, oh, yeah, there's a serial killer in it. Not saying there aren't any evil people in the world of any race, but it's so obvious what the media and entertainment are trying to do here. Just about had it with Netflix. You, If you can stomach it, try Slasher. Well, after that review, I don't know if uh, that's going to, you know, get me to watch it. I think that's probably unlikely. Angela writes, Buck, hey, I watched the Senate hearing today with Google. Do you think this will make a difference in our elections and the bias on conservatives? Angela, I don't know. I do know there are a lot of radio hosts who will always tell you they do know, even when they don't, but I don't know. I think that this issue of social media censorship is incredibly complicated. There are very strong arguments in different directions about what to do about it. I just know we're at a huge disadvantage. And if we don't figure this out, or if we don't fight back effectively, the ways that the left will be able to control debate, discussion, and politics going forward, we can just begin to understand how much control they will really have of the dialogue and of the, dis- of the discourse. So, uh, Steve writes, hey, Buck, meant to drop this to you yesterday. My favorite rum, it's a touch pricey at $45 here up in New Hampshire, 
more for sipping than mixing or just throwing a few back is Ron Z, a.k.a. Ron Zacapa. What can I say other than damn tasty? Z-A-C-A-P-A. Crafted in Guatemala. Zacapa rum is a work of art. All right. I'll check this out. You guys are really coming at me with all the rum suggestions here. Uh, let's see. Steve writes, quick movie comparison. Gladiator is a great movie. Check out its 1964 forerunner, Fall of the Roman Empire. Richard Harris, who played Marcus Aurelius in 2000, was offered the role of Commodus in the 64 movie. Huh. Yeah, Richard Harris died. I know that a few years ago. He was pretty old. Um, and he was good as Marcus Aurelius. He was also Dumbledore initially in the Harry Potter movies, which I've never read the Harry Potter books, and I've only seen one Harry Potter movie. So all this Harry Potter stuff I've just picked up from the culture. I, I don't have any real Potter knowledge. Uh, and then as for Commodus in the 64 movie, very interesting. Fall of the Roman Empire, huh? I'll have to check it out. Mika writes, Mr. Buck, thank you for your voice. I look forward to it every day. I just wanted to point out that Nancy Pelosi sure got quiet about impeachment since the bar report's been pushed back until next month. I expect to hear more about impeachment about a week before the bar report drops. Speak loud for all of us because we need your voice. Shields high, Mika. Well, thank you so much, Mika. I'm trying to speak loudly for everybody. Make sure that we get all the important stuff out there. Uh, David writes, don't get sidetracked on a Netflix series. Keep up your great work on the current events we're facing today. I listen to the podcast every day. You're spot on. Take care. All right, David. Well, thank you. I mean, I don't think I'm getting too sidetracked on it, but the there are much broader themes in that Netflix series when they see us or the way they see us or whatever it is. Um, it's much more than just that series. It's the $40 million judgment paid out by the city of New York. It's the narrative that the media has concocted now of a racist NYPD and the systemic racism of it. And that was the real that was the real problem in the 90s and the late 80s in New York City, not the uh horrific murder rate and all the rapes and all the burglaries and break-ins and muggings and beatings. No, the problem was the systemic racism, you see. That was the problem. It's, it's a horrible thing, the falsehoods that are peddled by the mainstream media. It really, really is. Hey, Buck, this is from Bill. Regarding your radio show on June 24th, you spoke about people taking control of their medical needs. You also mentioned changing conventional wisdom in the medical field. You should check out drvarner.com. His views are extremely similar to yours. Uh, well, Bill, I will check him out. I mean, because I'm, I'm somebody who really, I've thought long and hard about this, and I've had to deal with the medical system in a couple of different capacities in my day. And, and I'm, I'm, always, I'm always astounded when you go to a doctor they charge you, as a lot of doctors in New York don't take insurance, which I don't know how much of that you see in other parts of the country, but in New York City, the top, a lot of the top doctors won't take any insurance. You show up and they just they give you a bill and you can submit it to your own insurance, but you'll walk in and you'll say, hey, I have, you know, I had, I was getting chronic headaches for a while, for example, just horrible debilitating headaches. It was actually happening for a while while I was doing the radio show, but radio was always an escape from it, even when I had the pain. And the ability of the uh, medical community to really help you when you have debilitating headaches is is just shockingly flimsy. I mean, they really don't have much for you. And but you'll go in and they'll spend 
seven minutes with you and then you'll get a bill for $800 or $1,000 just to talk to them. And they haven't helped you, haven't done anything for you. And I know you say, well, Buck, you can't be based on whether they cure people or not. You're paying for the service. And yeah, but doesn't there have to be, isn't there just some sense of, of professional pride in, hey, I want to I want to help people and not just take their money because I have this credential and they get to wait for 30 minutes to spend five minutes with me after waiting two weeks or a month to get an appointment. You know, isn't there, shouldn't it be a little bit more than just, yeah, give me, give me my money and, you know, sorry, you're suffering. I, I look, I think modern medicine has a long, long, steep climb ahead of it. I'm way less impressed by it than I was when I was growing up. It seems like there's very little. Uh, there's very little that they, well, I shouldn't say there's very little they can fix. There's a lot they can't fix, though, that feels like it should be fixable. Um, let's see here. We have, I know I have these very uh, antagonistic views of modern medicine. Michelle writes, Juanita Broderick. She was the first woman Bill Clinton bit the lip of and raped. Jennifer Flowers was his girlfriend. The Energizer is his new girlfriend, um, sadly, he looks like he really, really needs a boost right about now. Michelle writes about Bill Clinton. Uh, I think Jennifer Flowers, I'm pretty sure she accused him of sexual assault, uh, Michelle. And Juanita Broderick also accused. Let, let me see. I, I might, I might have that wrong, but, uh, I'm pretty sure she was also somebody that, cause there was more than one, there was more than one, uh, woman. Yeah, no, she also accused him. Uh, I, didn't she accuse him of sexual assault, or am I crazy? Um, Bill Clinton testified he had a sexual encounter with Flowers. I'm trying to make sure I get this right. Um, oh, no. That's, I guess, uh, yeah. No, you're right, I think. it's. You're, I guess it's, um, I, had that, I had that backwards. Juanita Broderick. Jennifer Flowers was his girlfriend. Okay. Well, then it's Juanita Broderick. All right. Well, learn something new. Thank, thanks for the correction there. My bad. Um, well, team. Well, what's, oh, do we have time for one more? Let me see here. Sorry, I was doing a little bit of Wikipedia in real time there to make sure. Is Wikipedia even correct? Who knows? People rely on it way too much because it's just so easy. Um, well, this is, uh, this is a long Christian passage. Thank you for sending it to me, Lori, but I cannot read it on the air. Oh. Unfortunately, we are at time today for the show. I really appreciate you all hanging out with me. Thank you so much. Tomorrow, we'll have a fantastic show in preparation for the Democrat debates. Until then, Shields High.